All right, right at the break, we mentioned avatars, and uh, it turns out that if you're in London, you can check out a version of ABBA avatars performing to sold-out crowds. November 2022 issue of The Atlantic has a piece by James Parker titled Take a Chance on Them. And in the article, the author describes how impressed he was by going to various concerts in the past, but nothing transported him in quite the manner in which he was transported a few weeks earlier when he saw a vision of ABBA and said it was a vision. At a purpose-built arena in East London, ABBA, described as those smiley, soft-spoken radicals, those almost blandly futuristic Swedes, has orchestrated an immaculate 3,000-person, 95-minute digital hallucination. He said, this is CGI stuff, the outer limit. Four figures appear on stage before us, avatars, denser than holograms, more shimmeringly charged than human beings with a kind of atomic brightness, composites of light and longing, we know them, Bjorn, Benny, Agnetha, Frida, in their late 70s slash early 80s pomp, their poppiest plumage, variously nodding and swishing and keening and twinkling and making little gracious gestures. Huge side screens give us close-ups, flashes of realism, the eyes, the sweat and the cheekbones. Holy crap, ABBA! The article notes that ABBA Voyage, as it's known, was five years and zillions of dollars in the making a meisterwork created with industrial light and magic, the visual effects company founded by George Lucas. And it's the future. I think we can understand at this point why it is various celebrities might not want their images transformed into something like this unless they're getting a piece of the action, which ABBA clearly is. Anyway, if I was planning a trip to London anytime soon, I, I would like to check this out. Although it's noted that there's seven performances a week and it's sold out for months in advance. And in the previous issue of The Atlantic from October of 2022, which we subscribe to, dear listener, for your benefit, there was a piece by Drew Gilpin Faust titled, Cursive is History, subtitled, My Students Can't Read Script, How Will They Interpret the Past? Holy cuneiform, Batman. Here's how the article starts. It was a good book, the student told the 14 others in the undergraduate seminar I was teaching. And it included a number of excellent illustrations, such as photographs of relevant Civil War manuscripts. But, he continued, those weren't very helpful to him because, of course, he couldn't read cursive. Noted the author, had I heard him correctly? who can't read cursive. I asked the class. The answer? About two-thirds. And who can't write it? Even more. What do they do about signatures? They had invented them by combining vestiges of whatever cursive instructions they may have had with the creative squiggles and flourishes. Amused by my astonishment, the students offered reflections about the place or absence of having handwriting in their lives. Instead of the Civil War past, we found ourselves exploring a different set of historical challenges. In my ignorance, I became their pupil, as well as a kind of historical artifact, a Rip Van Winkle confronting a transformed world. In 2010, he goes on, 
Cursive was omitted from the new National Common Core Standards for K-12 Education. The students in my class and their peers were then somewhere in elementary school. Handwriting instruction had already been declining as laptops and tablets and lessons in keyboarding assumed an ever more prominent place in the classroom. Most of my students remembered getting no more than a year or so of somewhat desultory cursive training, which was often pushed aside by a growing emphasis on, quote, teaching to the test, unquote. Now, in college, they represent the vanguard of a cursiveless world. I was unaware of this. Apparently, the author was, for many years, a Harvard president. He concluded his essay thusly, All of us, not just students and scholars, will be affected by cursives lost. The inability to read handwriting deprives society of direct access to its own past. We will become reliant on a small group of trained translators and experts to report what history, including the documents and papers of our own families, was about. The spread of literacy in the early modern West was driven by people's desire to read God's word for themselves, to be empowered by an experience of unmediated connections. The abandonment of cursive represents a curious reverse parallel. We are losing connection and thereby disempowering ourselves. On the last day of class, a student came up to me with a copy of one of my books and asked me to sign it. I wrote an inscription that included not just his name and mine, but thanks for his many contributions to the seminar. Then I added a little wistfully, if he'd like me to read it to him. And postscript, I slightly identified the author here. Drew Gilpin Faust is a contributing writer to The Atlantic and a former president of Harvard, where she was the author of six books, including The Republic of Suffering, Death, and The American Civil War. I should add, Mr. Moylan is not worried about this. He's going to get an app that will read any cursive that he's unable to decipher. Well, I can actually read cursive, but I meant for the people who don't read cursive. God help us. All right, let's take a moment and go back out into outer space. Stop that. Well, it turns out astronomers are pretty excited about the six planets that have been found orbiting the HD 110067 system. Article from New Scientist by Alex Wilkins from last month states, when planets orbit a star in a fixed regular pattern, they are said to be resonant. They will continue like this until they are knocked off course by another large object passing nearby or smashing into them, setting them on a chaotic changing orbit. For instance, it is thought that Jupiter and Saturn swapped places early in the solar system's formation as they passed close by. But apparently if you don't have such a chaotic movement, a resonant system might remain unchanged from its birth. Now back in 2020, astronomers discovered a pair of resonant planets, resonant meaning they orbit in multiples or fractions of one another. For example, the inner moons of Jupiter, Io, Europa, and Ganymede have orbits in the ratio of one, two, and four to Jupiter. Anyway, studying data from uh, TESS, which is described as the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, and then cross-referencing that to the CHEOPS spacecraft, Characteristic Exoplanet Satellite, they found not just two bodies orbiting in resonance, but a third. And they kept looking at the data, and pretty soon they teased out six planets, all orbiting in a flat plane, that almost perfectly fit the data. And we're going to just spot on the use of that word, almost. 
and move on to note that the perfect resonance means that the planets around the star have probably been like this since they formed 4 billion years ago. And I'm sure they're going to continue to study these planets, and when they have more data, we'll report on it for you. And closer to home, some astronomers have taken a look at uh, Venus, our sister planet. Venus is almost exactly the same size as the Earth. But uh, unlike Earth and Mars, by the way, which orbit on their axes about every 24 hours, Venus takes hundreds of days to make a turn. It's now been speculated that if Venus originally had a moon, and that moon was orbiting retrograde, meaning opposite of the direction that the planet spins in, that it might have crashed into Venus one day and raised hell with its spin. Now, to confirm this uh, provocative idea, we're going to have to go to Venus and bring back some, I guess you can't call them geological samples, since geo refers to Earth. So I guess in the absence of a proper term, we at Radio Prowlers are going to label them venological samples. Can you say that on the air? I believe so. But uh, boy, maybe, maybe someday we'll know. Of course, to know, we're going to have to figure out a way to parachute down or rocket down to the Venusian surface, which has been done by the Russians, and bring some specimens back to Earth. This, this is going to be no easy task. The atmosphere of that planet is 200 times as dense as ours is, and the surface temperature is about 800 degrees Fahrenheit. But maybe someday. And since we're talking about cosmic things, and we're just mentioning Isaac Newton, let's, uh, let's jump to his modern analog, Albert Einstein. I have an archival article from April of 2007 about a couple of books written on Einstein. A piece by Andrew Robinson explores uh, these books about Einstein, noting that in February of 1950, a few months after the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb, and just after President Truman announced the U.S. would accelerate the production of a, quote, super bomb, which we know as the hydrogen bomb, Albert Einstein, and I had no idea this happened, went on national U.S. television to drop his own bombshell. He told his fellow Americans, if these efforts should prove successful, radioactive poisoning of the atmosphere, and hence annihilation of all life on Earth, will have been brought within the range of what is technically possible. He also warned of a malaise in the country, noting, quote, Tremendous financial power is being concentrated in the hands of the military. Youth is being militarized, and the loyalty of citizens, particularly civil servants, is carefully supervised by a police growing more powerful every day. This, we would add, is 11 years ahead of President Eisenhower's military-industrial complex speech, and notes Andrew Robinson the very next day, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, sent a top-secret memo to every FBI office in the country requesting any and all derogatory information they had on Albert Einstein. Hoover's efforts to prove that the world's most famous scientist was a communist sympathizer, perhaps an atom spy, like the recently arrested Klaus Fuchs, might get him deported from his adopted country. This effort would continue for the rest of Einstein's life. When the FBI files were closed after his death in 1955, it contained more than 1,800 pages of public statements by him and unsubstantiated allegations against him. This investigation remained secret until the 1990s. Even now, after the publication of Fred Jerome's eye-opening The Einstein File in 2002, 
This aspect of his extraordinary life often provokes surprise and discomfort. The article notes that Einstein's scholars and biographies have tended to downplay their subject's political activism in favor of his awe-inspiring scientific achievements. The only substantial book on his politics published in English was a collection of his own writings, Einstein on Peace, dating from 1960 and long out of print. The main reason for this gap, notes Robinson, appears to be that Einstein's intervention in politics were not decisive, with the single crucial exception of the letter he wrote in August of 1939 to President Roosevelt, urging him to set up a government inquiry into the possibility of building an atom bomb. What's more, Einstein's politics have widely been regarded as naive. He fervently campaigned for a world government or reformed United Nations, with the military power to enforce the settlements of disputes between nations and thereby to abolish war. Einstein clung to a belief in the possibility of Arab-Jewish cooperation and firm opposition to the creation of a Jewish nation-state in Palestine, which did not stop Israel from offering him his presidency in 1952. Einstein never joined a political party or movement, which makes it difficult for any group to claim him as one of its own. His closest links were with Zionists in the 1920s and pacifists in the 1930s. Yet in both cases, there was a public falling out, most notably with the pacifists in 1933, after Hitler's rise to power, when Einstein abruptly changed his mind about compulsory military service and supported it as a necessary bulwark against German rearmament. Later in the piece, it's noted that in politics, Einstein believed that the state was needed in order that the creativity of the individual might flourish, not because some universal law could encompass human behavior. Unfettered personal freedom was the chief attraction of the U.S. for him and the reason he assiduously avoided aligning himself with the Soviet Union, despite his socialist sympathies. Writing in the 1920s, Einstein said, I am neither a German citizen nor do I believe in anything that might be described as Jewish faith. But I am a Jew, and I'm glad to belong to the Jewish people, though I do not regard it in any way as chosen. There's so much we could say about Albert Einstein, but we're going to have to just end with a quote from him, which is that life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. And moving from New Scientist to The New Yorker, we have a piece from November 20th, 2023, about someone else that ran into a bit of trouble with the FBI, Charlie Chaplin. In this case, it is a book review by Louis Menand about Charlie. Chaplin's troubles, notes the article, began, oddly enough, with The Great Dictator. Chaplin conceived of that movie in 1938, a year before the Second World War started, and he imagined it principally as a response to the Nazi persecution of the Jews. He had been targeted as a non-Aryan by the Nazis since 1933, the year Hitler came to power. A Nazi publication, Jews Are Looking at You, featured a doctored photo of Chaplin, who is said to be as boring as he is revolting. There had been rumors that Chaplin was Jewish, which he almost certainly was not. Chaplin did believed that he had Roma ancestry, as do some of his grandchildren who were reported to be making a documentary about that. Now, many Americans, and not just Republicans, wanted the country to stay out of a European war, and the British did not want to antagonize Hitler. Chaplin was still a British citizen. Before production on The Great Dictator even began, Neville Chamberlain's government announced that it would ban the picture in England. 
In September of 1941, after the movie had been released in the U.S., Chaplin was subpoenaed by a congressional subcommittee investigating, quote, pro-war propaganda, unquote. The attack on Pearl Harbor three months later ended that exercise, but Chaplin was beginning to be regarded with suspicion in Washington. The FBI, which had been following him, ramped up surveillance. And the agency, under its director, J. Edgar Hoover, leaked information, largely inaccurate or uncorroborated, to friendly columnists. Then Chaplin gave his detractors a gift in 1942 in an impromptu speech to the American Committee for Russian War Relief in San Francisco. He called for opening a second front in the war in Europe. Germany and the Soviet Union had signed a non-aggression pact in 1939, just before Germany invaded Poland. But 22 months later, much to Stalin's astonishment, Germany invaded the Soviet Union. The invasion turned out to be a fatal miscalculation, but the outcome was long in doubt. The Wehrmacht did come within a dozen miles of Moscow. Stalin implored the Allies to attack Germany from the West, but they waited until D-Day, June 6, 1944, to do so. In 1942, therefore, calling for a second front could be interpreted not as anti-fascist, but pro-communist. Many Americans were happy to see the Nazis and the communists brutalize each other. Criticized for the San Francisco speech, Chaplin did not back down. He gave more speeches in which he said things like, I'm not a communist, but I'm proud to say I feel pretty pro-communist. I don't want a radical change. I want an evolutionary change. Anyway, Charlie Chaplin was soon attacked for the fact that he did not take out American citizenship and remained a British citizen. His good friend and former co-worker, Stan Laurel, always thought that was just ridiculous. Stan Laurel obtained a British passport to the end of his days, but he managed to stay out of trouble politically by not making speeches in San Francisco. Anyway, the piece notes that Chaplin might have survived the attacks on him because his views, after all, were not substantially different from the views of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who encouraged Chaplin to make the great dictator. Two of Chaplin's sons enlisted and saw combat in the Second World War. Charlie Chaplin loved America and had no reason not to. He just hated nationalism. He thought it was irrational and divisive and chose to be a man of no country and therefore of all countries. Anyway, we don't have time to delve into the entire life of Charlie Chaplin and his, uh, <clears throat> his battle with the FBI, but the piece does note that um, there was a federal prosecution of Charlie Chaplin under the Mann Act in 1944. It was based on intelligence gathered by the FBI about one of his consorts, trip to New York. The Mann Act is what the phrase white slave traffic in an FBI report alluded to. It makes it a federal crime to transport a woman across state lines for prostitution, debauchery, or other immoral purposes, including sex between unmarried persons. Since Menard notes that such transactions happen every day in our great land, prosecution under the Mann Act is highly selective. I do remember from a book that I read, a biography about Charlie Chaplin, that uh, he lost in a court case, a, a, a paternity trial. The judge ordered Charlie Chaplin to pay a woman $5,000 plus child support until her daughter was 21 years of age. What I thought remarkable about this case was the fact that blood tests proved that Charlie Chaplin could not have been the father. But apparently the very able prosecutor was able to convince the jury that, uh, well, that, that just didn't matter. And, you know, at this juncture, I can't resist putting in a plug for the, um, the SNA Museum in Niles, now Fremont, California, which um, has a wonderful collection of silent film memorabilia. Charlie Chaplin did live in Niles 
for at least a couple months back in 1915, and filmed his legendary The Tramp in Niles Canyon. We were privileged on this program to speak with someone who was a close associate of Charlie Chaplin. That would be actor Norman Lloyd. We can highly recommend to you that you check out uh, those interviews uh, in our archives, which can be found at radioparallax.com. Norman Lloyd did tell us one story that's not generally reported upon, that um, after, Charlie was denied re- after Charlie was denied re-entry to the U.S., after he made a trip to London, I believe 1952, Norman Lloyd was privy to the fact that he did send his wife, Una O'Neill, back to L.A. to dig up a million dollars, which he'd buried somewhere in his backyard. We can't vouch for this story, but we think Norman Lloyd was pretty credible. Although this does call to mind the quote from Frank Sinatra, who was once accused of handing somebody a million dollars in a briefcase, which prompted Sinatra to reply with, you can't fit a million dollars into a suitcase. You know, if you can, I'll give you the suitcase. But not the million dollars? I I think that's what he was implying. Technicality. Well, yeah. A good lawyer would get you off on that one. We should note before we move away from the topic completely that uh, Chaplin did have other detractors besides uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. William Randolph Hearst wasn't too fond of him. In fact, in the Hearst Gossam columns, you could pretty much count on two people being pilloried back in the 1950s, which were Orson Welles and Charlie Chaplin. Now, you can understand why Hearst had it in for Wells. The Charles Foster Kane of Citizen Kane is clearly patterned on Hearst. But we do pose the question of whether Hearst's animosity toward Chaplin may have something to do with his anti-Nazi stance. And for that, we're going to go to the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series, our earliest copy. This is the one from 1996. It was only the eighth in the series, which had a chapter titled Good News for Hitler which I think I will now quote from. In September of 1934, William Randolph Hearst went to the world-famous spa at Bad Nauheim to take the waters. The Nazi government welcomed him. After a month of socializing with prominent Germans, Hearst was invited to meet the new chancellor, Adolf Hitler. According to German newspapers, Hearst was charmed and converted by the Nazi leader. Uncle John's notes the German newspaper may have been right. When he returned to the U.S., Hearst completely changed the editorial policy of his 19 daily newspapers and began praising the Nazi regime. For example, a September 1934 editorial signed by Hearst began, Hitler's enormously unpopular outside of Germany and enormously popular in Germany. This is not difficult to understand. Hitler restored character and courage. Hitler gave hope and confidence. He established order and unity of purpose, and the Germans love him for that. They regard him as a savior. Uncle John then asked the question, was Hearst offering his praise for free, or was he paid? Citing the book, Even the Gods Can't Change History by George Seldes, they note that Hearst's change in editorial policy came less than a month after the Nazi minister of propaganda first subscribed to his international news service, INS a wire service that Hearst had created to compete against the AP and UPI. INS was considered by journalists to be by far the worst of the three services. Even so, the Nazis paid Hearst more than $400,000 a year for the subscription to INS, at a time when other customers only paid fifty dollars to $70,000 for the same service. The Nazis paid only $40,000, for the subscription to the Associated Press. 
Week after week, Hearst papers ran pieces sympathetic to the Nazis. One article which justified German rearmament to the American people was written by Hitler's Minister of Aviation, Hermann Goering. By the way, William Randolph Hearst was so powerful that even though the word had gotten out um, about Hearst dealing with Hitler and also Mussolini, no paper, not one of the 1,700 newspapers that Hearst didn't own said a word about it. And in closing, we want to cite uh, the work of a crusading journalist because we're very big fans on this program of people who will stand up and speak truth to power. In this case, we refer to Dorothy Thompson. Thompson was a journalist who obtained work at the previously mentioned International News Service and found herself in Germany in the 1920s. She was fluent in German and was married to a Hungarian and developed in the 20s a deep understanding of Central European politics. She sought and finally obtained in 1931 an interview with Hitler. She'd been trying to obtain such an interview since the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923. She could only ask him three questions, which were to be submitted a full day in advance. Thompson came away from the interview less than impressed, saying, quote, When I finally walked into Adolf Hitler's salon in the Kaiserhof Hotel, I was convinced that I was meeting the future dictator of Germany. In something less than 50 seconds, I was quite sure that I was not. He is formless, almost faceless, a man whose countenance is a caricature, a man whose framework seems cartilaginous, without bones, He is inconsequential and voluble, ill-poised, insecure, the very prototype of the little man. While she certainly misjudged Hitler's appeal because he became chancellor in Germany just two years later, her biting character assessment stayed with the Fuhrer, and the Nazis disinvited her from the country soon afterwards. Back in the U.S., she then mounted a one-woman crusade against the Nazis. She denounced the German government frequently and vigorously in her syndicated column On the Record, which ran in 170 newspapers and reached roughly 8 million readers. She also spread her message through regular radio broadcasts for NBC. We can only suppose here at Radio Parallax that our fellow radio personality probably also raised the hackles at the FBI because back in the 1930s, Criticizing the Nazis got you a lot of enemies here in the U.S. of A. Oh, and her second husband was Sinclair Lewis. And the book that he wrote, It Can't Happen Here, was a dystopian fantasy about a fascist dictator who takes over the United States. And you can bet that Dorothy Thompson influenced that work. And I'm sorry to note that we're going to have to cut off any future discussions of dystopian fantasies about a fascist dictator taking over the United States until next week's program. Not much of a fantasy now, is it? Wouldn't seem so. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you soon.